Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 33. We're going to look at a few examples of trigger-happy pilots and missile operators, starting with the 5th of April 1948 Gatow air disaster over Berlin as the Cold War ramped up. That was after the Second World War. A British European Airways Vickers VC-1B Viking airliner crashed near RAF Gatow Air Base after a Soviet Air Force Yakovlev Yak-3 fighter aircraft flew into it from below. All 10 passengers and four crew on board the Viking were killed, as well as the Soviet pilot. This incident is a warning to aviators in the contemporary world. Witness the tension between the Chinese and Taiwan, North, South Korea, near misses above the Baltic, and less reported, but as dangerous, incidents across the Middle East. First, 1948. The Gatow air disaster was a mid-air collision that sparked an international incident between America, Britain and Russia, leading to heightened tensions which escalated into what we know as the Berlin Blockade. This was a rather clumsy attempt by Joseph Stalin to force Europe to back down about the Marshall Plan. The historical backdrop of the Gatow air disaster was ostensibly a clash over the future of Berlin and Germany after 1945. At the end of World War II, the Allied powers agreed to divide and occupy Germany, including the capital, Berlin. Both the country and capital were cut up into four sections. The Americans, British, French shared the western half of Berlin, while the Soviets occupied East Berlin. The division of Germany placed Berlin well inside the Soviet zone of occupation, and supplies to West Berlin had to be brought in either overland or by air from the American, British and French zones in West Germany. The country was jointly governed by the wartime allies through an Allied Control Council, which met periodically to coordinate events and discuss the future of Germany. The future of Berlin was jointly governed by the Allied Kommandatura. In 1947, a tense diplomatic and military standoff began to unfold between the US, the UK and the Soviet Union over Germany's future. The Americans and Western allies wanted to include the sectors of Germany which they controlled in the Marshall Plan an economic rebuild of Europe after the devastation of the war. The Soviets regarded the Marshall Plan as the foundation for an anti-Soviet alliance and pressured the Americans, the British and the French to back down. In the modern world, the attempt by Ukraine to join the EU and discussions with NATO are a similar moment, not to mention other former Eastern European states. Russia tends to be extremely paranoid about any mention of economic growth driven from the West and this paranoia stretches back centuries. On the 20th of March, 1948, the Soviet representative walked out of the meeting of the Allied Control Council, and on the 31st of March, 1948, the US Congress approved funding for the Marshall Plan. Soviet troops immediately began blocking the corridor that brought supplies from the western zones of Germany to West Berlin. In response, an increased number of aircraft brought supplies into Berlin's Tempelhof airfield in the American sector and Gatow airfield in the British sector. The air crews from the US Air Force, the Navy, the Royal Air Force and British civilian contractors flew cargoes into Berlin. The French provided land for a vitally important third airfield in the blockaded city. German and refugee laborers loaded and unloaded cargo, while a network of support organizations that spanned two continents kept the planes in the air. With supply lines uncertain, the first airlifts began in early April, and within 10 days they delivered 327 tons of cargo for use by the U.S. Berlin garrison at first. Lieutenant Oliver Latch of the 61st Troop Carrier Group flew the first mission on the evening of the 1st of April, carrying a load of coffee and sugar. 
No ammunition. The Americans at the base needed their coffee to stay alert as the tension with the Russians grew. The 61st conducted 33 flights on the 2nd of April. At the HQ of the United States Air Force in Europe at Wiesbaden, planners said they expected to be flying 80 tons a day plus passengers and mail by the 4th of April. By now, the Soviets were also interfering with British trains, purposefully slowing produce and foodstuff deliveries overland. Despite the danger of flying in such conditions, civilian aircraft continued in and out of Berlin. So now the aircraft involved in the incident was a Vickers 610 Viking 1B registration Gulf Alpha India Victor Papa, which had rolled off the assembly line in 1947. The BEA flight had a four-member crew, all of whom were former members of the RAF. There were 10 passengers on board, most of whom were British. The Viking was on a scheduled commercial flight from London via Hamburg to RAF Gatow at approximately 2.30 in the afternoon while the Viking was in the airport's safety area leveling off to land on final as Soviet Yak-3 approached from behind. Eyewitnesses testified that as the Viking made a left-hand turn prior to its approach to land, a fighter dived beneath it, climbed sharply and clipped the port wing of the airliner with its starboard wing. The impact ripped off both colliding wings and the Viking crashed inside the Soviet sector at Heineberg, just outside the British sector and four kilometers northwest of Gatow, and exploded. The Yak-3 crashed near a farmhouse on Heerstrasse, just inside the British sector. All the occupants of both the aircraft died. Moscow claimed the Yak pilot was doing aerobatics prior to the accident, but the Soviet Air Force had not informed the Royal Air Force air traffic controllers at Gatow of its presence. Moscow then said the fighter was on final, coming into land at Dalgo, a nearby Soviet airbase. But the Yak wreckage showed its undercarriage was up, so unless it was conducting wheels-up landings, an unlikely story. Allied investigators concluded that the collision was caused by the action of the Yak fighter, which was in disregard of the accepted rules of flying, and in particular of the quadripartite flying rules to which Soviet authorities were parties. Initially, there was a suggestion the crash may have been deliberate on the part of the Soviet pilot. British military governor of Germany, General Brian Robertson, immediately went to see his Soviet counterpart, Marshal Vasily Sokolovsky, and protested. Sokolovsky expressed regret and assured Robertson that it was not intentional, and Robertson took him at his word and cancelled his earlier order to provide fighter protection for all British transport aircraft entering or leaving Gatow. The Americans cancelled their own order as well. Stand down, as they say. The British Foreign Office then issued a statement that a very serious view is taken in London of today's air crash in Berlin. While the generals seemed to be friendly, on the ground things were not friendly at all. RAF fire engines and ambulances sent from Gatar to the Viking crash site were initially allowed into the Soviet zone, then quickly ordered to leave. A few minutes after the crash, Soviet soldiers entered the British zone and set up a cordon around the crashed fighter to protect their yak. Major General Herbert, the British Commandant of Berlin, arrived and demanded they leave, but the Russian officer in charge refused. A senior Russian officer then arrived and agreed to the removal of all but a single guard, in return allowing a British guard to be placed over the wreck of the Viking. A British-Soviet Commission of Inquiry was set up on the 10th of April. The Soviet representative, Major General Alexandrov, refused to hear evidence of German or American witnesses, claiming that only British and Soviets could be believed, and also that the Germans were unreliable. I suppose after what the Russians had just experienced, as the Reich destroyed half of their country and killed about 27 million people there or more, you can understand Alexandrov's point of view. 
On the 13th of April, the British ended the joint hearing, say they were unable to proceed on this basis and set up a British Court of Inquiry convened by General Robertson held in Berlin between the 14th and 16th of April. This concluded that the crash was accidental, that the fault in the crash was entirely that of the Soviet pilot, and that Captain John Rolfe and First Officer Norman Merrington, DFC of BEA, were not to blame. The Soviets rejected the outcome, blaming the British pilots, saying they had suddenly emerged from low cloud and crashed into their fighter. This was not possible, because the Viking was flying at 1,500 feet, and the cloud base was at 3,000, and the Yak had been climbing close to a commercial flight, and the British plane had been descending at a leisurely 3 degrees on the glide slope as it headed towards the airport. But Moscow didn't let facts get in the way of a good story. And just to press home a kind of tone-death fundamentalism, a few days later on the 17th of April, three Soviet fighters made passes over an American plane which kind of gave the game away about what had been going on. You could say it was case closed. On the 4th of May, the Soviet representative in the Berlin Air Safety Center followed up the intimidation by trying to ban all night flying, but the Western representatives rejected the right of any one power to impose unilateral restrictions. Later that month, the Soviets announced they'd conduct military maneuvers in the flight corridors over Berlin and attempt to preempt Western use of the airways going forward. Then on June 24, 1948, the Soviet Union blocked all road and rail travel to and from West Berlin. The Soviet action was in response to the refusal of American and British officials to allow Russia more say in the economic future of Germany. So the Berlin airlift lasted for 15 months 250,000 flights were logged, carrying 2 million tons of supplies. At its height, an aircraft was landing at Berlin's Tempelhof Airport every 60 seconds. Keeping West Berlin supplied in this way cost the Americans $350 million and Britain around £17 million. And just out of interest, the last flight on September 30, 1949 was an American C-54 carrying 2 tons of coal. Stalin was powerless to stop the Berlin airlift. To shoot down the planes could have provoked World War III, and at this stage, unlike the USA, the USSR did not have nuclear weapons. As the air corridors had been agreed at Yalta, the Allies were entitled to use them. So let's take a look at other examples of the military behaving badly. On July 27, 1955, an LL flight from Vienna and Austria to Tel Aviv and Israel blundered into Bulgarian airspace and was shot down by two MiG fighters. All 58 people on board died. After initially denying involvement, Bulgaria admitted to having downed the aircraft. Despite occurring during a low point in relations between the Soviet bloc and the US and its allies, international fallout was actually minimal. That was probably because the Israelis had been conducting their own terror campaign against the British just prior to independence and the Allies' memory appeared to be long. Eight years after the attack, Bulgaria paid Israel $195,000 in compensation, about $1.5 million in today's money. Moving east, on July 23, 1954, mainland China's People's Liberation Army fighters shot down a Cathay Pacific Airways CA-54 Skymaster. The plane was flying from Bangkok to Hong Kong when it was hit. Ten out of the 19 passengers and crew died. In apologizing for the attack to Britain a few days later, the Chinese government claimed they had thought the plane was a military aircraft from Taiwan, which they presumed was on an attack mission. The Chinese didn't just shoot the commercial plane down. 
After the tragedy, their fighters then attacked three U.S. Navy planes who were searching for survivors. The Americans shot down the two PLA aircraft. This incident risked bringing the Allies further into the battles that were occurring between the People's Republic of China and Taiwan. Some things just never change. The Chinese have once again predated on Taiwan in recent months and are now conducting virtually constant military drills around the island. Analysts believe China will eventually invade Taiwan probably soon after 2024 when the Chinese Navy achieves parity with the American Navy. On we go. There is an unfortunately long list of various air forces and the military shooting down civilian airliners. On February 21, 1973, a Boeing 727 operated by Libyan Arab Airlines was en route from Tripoli to Cairo when the pilots got lost. They flew over the Sinai Peninsula, which had been under Israeli control since the Six-Day War in 1967. After signaling the aircraft using the standard light system and firing warning rounds, Israeli jets shot down the plane, killing 108 of the 113 people on board. Four passengers and a co-pilot survived. The Israeli chief of staff of the armed forces, David Elazar, took responsibility, and Defense Minister Moshe Dayan called it an error of judgment. The Israeli government compensated the families of victims as Libya condemned the attack as a criminal act, while the Soviets called it a monstrous new crime. On June 27, 1980, an Itavia Airlines flight from Bologna to Palermo with 81 passengers and crew, crashed in the Tyrrhenian Sea off Sicily. The New York Times reported a stray missile had hit the plane. An Italian court agreed, citing abundantly clear evidence, including missiles being fired nearby. To this day, we have no information about which country's missile it was. The Italians believed the Ottavia jet was confused with the plane carrying Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. They presented radar evidence showing U.S., French, Libyan and British military operations were underway near the site of the crash, increasing the tension. Francesco Cossiga, who was Italian Prime Minister at the time, said it sometime later that the plane was actually shot down by the French. Paris has remained silent. No one has ever admitted responsibility, or claimed responsibility for that matter, so the mystery persists. Then an incident occurred in 1983, which has been referred to as that time the Soviet Union killed a sitting U.S. congressman. KAL-007 shot down by a Soviet fighter plane on September 1, 1983, killing all 269 passengers and crew, including Larry MacDonald, a congressman from Georgia, in his fourth term. MacDonald would have loved social media, and it would have loved him. He was an ardent anti-communist and believer in various conspiracy theories about the Rockefellers, the Trilateral Commission, and the Council on Foreign Relations, who said were all involved in bringing about a socialist world government. MacDonald was also president of the John Birch Society, the ultra-right-wing conspiracist group. So it's truly ironic that he ended up on a flight shot down by the Soviets. Just before the troll brigade of conspiracy theorists start leaping up and down and emailing me or twittering me a quick explanation. The fact that the crash killed MacDonald would fit perfectly into his particular set of conspiracy theories, but there's no evidence that what happened was more complicated and KAL-007 actually entered Soviet airspace and was then shot down as an intruder. The Soviets had no idea he was on board 
let alone the loopy congressman. The International Civil Aviation Organization report from 1993, which had access to documents released by Russian President Boris Yeltsin, basically confirms that Soviet personnel were baffled and concerned by the presence of this unknown aircraft, rather than determined to strike intentionally, although their decision to strike without attempting to establish contact with the plane was reckless. But the United States has also had its share of mistaken identity. On July 3, 1988, as the Iran-Iraq war was winding down, US and Iranian ships were involved in some skirmishes in the Persian Gulf. An Airbus A300 took off from a nearby airport, one which was used for both military and civilian purposes. An American cruiser, the USS Vincennes, mistook the plane for an F-14, which the Americans had sold to Iran before the 1979 revolution, and the USS Vincennes fired two missiles, downing the Airbus, killing everyone on board. President Reagan called the event a terrible human tragedy and admitted responsibility, saying Washington deeply regretted any loss of life. Iran's UN ambassador condemned the action as a criminal act, an atrocity, and a massacre, while the U.S. insisted it was a mistake. Iran sued the United States in the International Court of Justice, and the American government eventually agreed to pay $61.8 million to the families of the victims starting in 1996. That was one-thirtieth of the compensation the U.S. secured from Libya for victims of the Lockerbie plane bombing that same year, just by the way. I suppose one was a mistake, the other a cynical act of terrorism, but try telling the families there's a difference. Anyway, the U.S. government has never apologized for shooting down the plane beyond Reagan's initial statement, and folks, to this day, this has not been forgotten by Tehran and contributes to Iranian mistrust of American intentions in 2023. On we go in this terrible list of trigger-happy military blunderers. On October 4th, 2001, 64 Siberian Airlines passengers and 12 crew on board a Soviet-made Tupolev 2U154 en route from Novosibirsk to Tel Aviv were killed when the plane was shot down over the Black Sea by a Ukrainian missile. It took a while for Kiev to admit that's what happened, but after pressure from Russian investigators, Ukraine's then-president Leonid Kuchma accepted the Ukrainian military was at fault. The day of the shootdown, the Ukrainian military was conducting large-scale military exercises which included the shooting of 23 missiles at drones. The radar-guided S-200 system, as it's known, was among the furthest flying anti-aircraft missile in the Soviet arsenal and locked onto the Russian airliner after it missed a drone 20 miles off the Crimean coast. This incident took place almost a decade after Ukraine achieved independence from Russia. Ukraine's Minister of Defense, Alexander Kuzmuk, resigned. Kiev eventually paid $15.6 million to the families following a deal with Israel. These are some of the examples of what goes wrong when a trigger-happy culture inside the military collides with civil aviation. Then let's not forget Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752, a scheduled international civilian passenger flight from Tehran to Kiev, operated by Ukraine International Airlines, which was shot down by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps on the 8th of January 2020. The Boeing 737-800 crashed, killing all 176 passengers and crew. In early 2022, Iran began paying families for that outrage. I dealt with this crash in episode 13. These days, military jets continue to fly over parts of the world without identifying themselves 
and they pose a high risk to civilian aircraft. As the war in Ukraine gains momentum and China continues to circle Taiwan like a hungry hammerhead and Middle Eastern conflicts surge, there are going to be more incidents involving airliners. The European Commission has already asked the European Aviation Safety Agency, or ESA, to investigate after recent reports of the near collisions between commercial airliners and Russian military planes flying without electronic identification. Russian planes have stepped up patrols over Europe and NATO has responded by sending more fighters to police Baltic skies amid an increase in tensions sparked by Ukraine. In addition to the incidents over the Baltic Several other EU member states have reported an increase in secretive military flights over the Atlantic Ocean, the Black Sea, and the Aegean Sea. There's a long history of this. In 2015, Swedish authorities complained the Russian military jets nearly collided with a commercial passenger plane near southern Sweden, but Moscow insisted its jet had kept at a safe distance. I guess you can start seeing a pattern here involving the Russian military or its allies and commercial airliners. Case in point... Malaysian MH17 airliner was downed over eastern Ukraine, shot down by Russian separatists, killing all 283 passengers and crew. But Europe is not alone, of course. In the Middle East, aviation has been roiled by decades of local disputes. Qatar has only recently been readmitted into the fold after years of conflict with Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt and Bahrain. Overflights by each other's airliners were banned until 2022. Doha appears to have emerged as a winner, with the country establishing its first ever airspace in 2022. That took a while. It's the first time it could control its own airspace since 1971, when Qatar and Bahrain gained independence from the UK. In a bizarre twist, Bahrain was given rights over Qatari airspace earning millions out of overflight fees and obviously angering the Qataris no end. So in March 11, 2022, the establishment of the Doha Flight Information Region, FIR, was approved by the Civil Aviation Organization Council. Still, Doha is not fully in control. This is only phase one. The control extends to all of Qatar's economic waters and lands, as well as the international waters east of the country to the UAE and Iranian borders, but only to an altitude of 24,500 feet. Most airliners fly at least 10,000 feet above that altitude anyway. If Qatar makes no mistakes, Phase 2 kicks in, which will see all zones of the Doha IFR expanded to an unlimited altitude, but expect some fireworks before then. The leaders of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and the Emirates were all chummy during the recent Football World Cup. But it was less than two years ago that they were all forcing Qatari planes to fly in and out of the country through a small passage over the Gulf to and from Iran's airspace, and then threatening each other with fighter jets. Before 2022, Qatar Airlines had to fly around Saudi Arabia, turning a a two-and-a-half-hour flight into a four-hour flight. Overall, Qatar Airways claims the blockade had costed $5 billion, excluding the $100 million per year The state paid Iran to use its airspace. So as America disconnects from the Middle East, it's led to the region focusing more on Russia and China and the Baltic region, and just for good measure, Turkey. This is not good news for governance of civil aviation in the long term. And let's not forget the ICBM developing land of North Korea. We sure do live in interesting times. Next episode, we'll take another look at the crash of airship R101 at Dirigible, 
As entrepreneurs consider refloating rigid airships with all sorts of luxuries, it's important to learn more about what can go wrong just so we keep everyone safe. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email through the sites desmondlatham.com or desmondlatham.blog or direct message me at Twitter. Until next, aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye. Thank you.